Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, and know you are, as always, welcome Yes, to the nook, to Tales to Terrify. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and please, please, pull up a chum, snuggle into a seat. Refreshments will be served. Well, stokers have been given out for the season. The little brown houses that are the awards, the visible part of the awards at least, the actual award being the approbation of your peers, but the houses have gone to various homes around the world. And by now you've probably seen the list on Tales to Terrify's Facebook page. If not, shame upon you, but you probably knew I'd read them, yes? Now, if you are sufficiently chastened, here are the winners of the 2012 Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, look, rather than repeat the phrase... For superior achievement in, over and over, let me just say that all Bram Stoker Awards are for superior achievement and are not labeled as best this and that. Okay? Okay. In the category of novel, The Drowning Girl from Rock Publishing gathered the award for Caitlin R. Kiernan. The award for first novel went to Life Rage by L. L. Soares out of Nightscape Press. 
And doesn't that make it sound like a thoroughbred horse? Life Rage by Soars out of Nightscape. Hmm. The Stoker for Young Adult Novel went to Flesh and Bone by Jonathan Mayberry, Simon & Schuster. For a graphic novel, Witch Hunts, A Graphic History of the Burning Times, by Rocky Wood and Lisa Morton, published by McFarland and Company, Incorporated. In the long fiction category, the award went to The Blue Heron by Jean O'Neill. Blue Heron was published by Dark Regions Press. For screenplay, Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard took home the stoker for The Cabin in the Woods, Mutant Enemy Productions, Lionsgate Films. The Stoker-winning anthology was Shadow Show from HarperCollins and went to Chicago chum Mort Castle and to Sam Weller. The fiction collection category brought the year's only tie. Stokers went to Mort Castle for New Moon on the Water from Dark Regions Press and to Joyce Carol Oates for Black Dahlia and White Rose, stories by Joyce Carol Oates from Echo Press. The nonfiction award went to Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween by Lisa Morton from Reaction Books. The award for poetry collection went to our old friend Marge Simon for Vampires, Zombies, and Wanton Souls from Electric Milk Bath Press. And finally, having saved the pertinent point, to us at least till last, Lucy A. Snyder took this year's Stoker for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. Her story, Magdala Amygdala, was read for us in show number 73 by Nicole Doolin, and a fine tale it is, too, and beautifully read by Ms. Doolin. You know, someday, after we've been casting for a few more years and have had a few more Stoker seasons under our belt— we should do, say, a retrospective, a pair or so or three of shows featuring the winners in the short fiction category since we first appeared in the multiverse. See what the community of professional horror folk have thought represented superior achievement over a span of time longer than just a single year. It might yield some interesting observations. Well... Congratulations again to all recipients and to all nominees. You'll be back, I'm sure. Let me see. No new art. No fact segment tonight. So, before the onset of the story hour, I have only to remind you to stop by the homepage at TalesToTerrify.com and send us a few dollars, pounds, shekels, or euros so that we may continue to bring you these nasty little evenings with this show, and so that our other neighborhoods, the Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp, may continue bringing you their wonders. And, of course, I must mention that you might consider stopping by the iTunes podcast site— and leaving Tales to Terrify a glowing review, if you think we glow, of course. And I should remind you to friend us on Facebook and keep up with us online, and keep us up on what you're doing when you're not part of the evening's mix here in the Nook. 
That's as interesting. There. Simple. And with that, we have now arrived at our first story of two for this evening. Toys. For children lucky enough to have them, toys provide a first touch of the larger world. From them we learn what things tweak our fancy. Planes, trucks, guns, babies, medical equipment, men, women. The world in those small bits of plastic and metal and fabric teach us what it is to be big. That's what toys are, models of our wants. We've all seen Toy Story. Oh, well, if you haven't, go, amend your ways. Get the entire Toy Story canon and follow as friendships, loyalty, maturity, develop, change, adapt. In the first Toy Story film... We see the nasty kid next door, the one who torments his toys in his torture chamber of a playroom, who murders them with knife and cherry bomb. This, of course, is in sharp contrast to the easygoing, friendly, mutually respectful relationship enjoyed by Woody, Buzz, the Potato Head family, all the others, and their boy, Andy. And there are, of course, other contrasting kinds of tales that explore the relationship between these avatars of the wider world and their human thralls. Well, here is one. Settle back and listen. Dolls by Drake Vaughn Ella spun toward the wooden toy chest. There was a clawing sound like an animal was wiggling inside. That was silly Nilly. She wasn't allowed to have any pets, not after Captain McNugget. Mommy said she'd hugged the hamster too hard, but that hadn't been a hug. Ella had squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until the fur ball had stopped moving. Maybe this was a mouse. She'd heard these at the old house. They went scratch all quick light. Still, this was different. It was slow and precise, as if something was climbing to the top. Ella craned her neck and looked closer. The chest slit was open, but she could only see the tippy top. She was about to stand when she heard the footsteps. That noise she recognized. It was Daddy. He always walked around like his feet were pounding a drum. And now that they were living at Grandma's, the thumping was super-duper loud. The house was just like Grandma, creaky and ready to collapse. And boy, did it smell weird. What are you doing? Ella bit her lip, trying to come up with the right answer. The scratching had stopped. So she felt silly telling Daddy about the noise. And she suspected this was one of those trick questions where any answer would make Daddy mad. He asked lots and lots of those, even when Ella wasn't misbehaving. It's not time to play. 
Ella nodded in agreement. She'd been right. Daddy was mad. He always got that way before they went over to Mommy's. Sometimes he would yell super duper loud, and once he even thrown a glass. It shattered and made a cool noise while shooting shards across Grandma's kitchen. Ella knew she was supposed to feel sad and cry like a baby, but it'd been exhilarating. Plus, it was nothing compared to the fights Mommy and Daddy used to have. Why aren't you dressed? Ella winced. Daddy had told her to get dressed a while ago, but she'd plumb forgot, just like she forgot to wash her face and brush her teeth. Ella liked to forget those a lot. Once she forgot for a whole four days, and nobody had bugged her. A thick layer of white grime had grown on her teeth, which she'd scraped off with a long nail. She'd eaten the grime, but it didn't have much taste. Not yummy like boogers and scabs, but it wasn't bad like earwax either. Did you hear me? Ella nodded again. She'd heard everything. Ella had really good hearing. Even Doctor Robertson had said so after doing all those tests with the beeps and tones. Though her favorite was the one where he'd hit her knee and she'd kick, even if she didn't want to. Doctor Robinson was good, unlike those other doctors who asked silly questions and always made Ella feel like she was in trouble. Why are you still in your PJs? Ella didn't have an answer, but luckily Ashley interrupted, telling Daddy he needed to take out the recycling. Ashley was always telling everybody to do one thing or another, and she never ever forgot anything, not even toothbrushing time. No wonder Daddy was always mad. But if Ashley tried to tell Ella what to do, Ella would just scream that she wasn't her real mommy. Sometimes Ashley would cry, and that made Ella super duper happy. You better be dressed by the time I get back. Ella nodded, but as soon as Daddy walked away, she rushed over to the wooden chest. She stared down into the pile of toys, trying to spot whatever had made the noise. There was only the normal assortment of plastic figurines, stuffed animals, and picture books. Ella shuffled through the contents, flinging toys across the floor. At the bottom, there were a couple of rattles from when she was a baby, along with a rock-hard can of Play-Doh. Still, she didn't see anything unusual or out of place. After scouring through the contents a second time, she took a step back and waited for the noise to return. When it didn't, she threw up her arms and hissed. Only make believe. She'd been a big dummy, just like her stupid neighbor Taylor. Ella hated her, since on their playdates Taylor would always pretend to hear silly things like monsters and ghosts and the boogeyman. Once she'd hid underneath the bed for a long, long time, crying that a tiger was outside waiting to eat her. Taylor was a real cuckoo berry. Oh, hello, Marissa Clarissa. How are you? Ella picked up a blonde-haired doll from the floor. She brushed her hand through Marissa Clarissa's hair, trying to remember the last time they'd played together. It'd been forever long ago, like almost three days. Ella felt bad for neglecting her in the dark chest, 
But Grandma was super strict about leaving toys on the floor. And toys weren't Grandma's worst complaint. She was always going on about this and that. And for some reason, the weather really set her off. If it was going to rain or snow, she would launch into a barrage of naughty words that Daddy said Ella should never repeat. And when Grandma was in a yelling mood, she would slap Ella for no reason at all. One time, Ella had gotten a black eye after forgetting to turn off the bathroom sink. Daddy said they would just have to put up with her until he could get working again. Marissa Clarissa, would you like to come on a trip? Ella hardly needed to ask. She always brought Marissa Clarissa wherever she went. The only real question was who else was going to come along. Ella placed the doll next to her pink flower bag. Ashley had packed the bag, but she didn't know anything and only put in boring stuff like clothes and a toothbrush. She never packed Marissa Clarissa, even though everyone knew she was Ella's bestie. Five minutes, you hear, Ella. Five minutes until we're leaving, Daddy yelled from upstairs. Ella grinned. Everything was always five minutes away, and five minutes was a long, long, long time. She picked up a plastic blue brush and began to swipe it through Marissa Glarissa's blonde hair. She couldn't bring her over to Mommy's with all those tangles. Ella adored her hair, since it wasn't like her own, all curly, curly, and unmanageable. She'd spend hours braiding it. Ella hoped to have hair just like Marissa Clarissa when she was all grown up. Unlike Ella, she was gorgeous and everyone loved her. That's right. Make her nice and pretty. Ella jerked back, dropping the brush. The voice had been raspy and harsh, much deeper than Daddy's, and it come from the pile of toys next to the chest. Ella gripped Marissa Clarissa to her side and squirmed backwards. There was a booming thud as she slammed against the rear wall. Is everything all right? Ashley asked from upstairs. Tell her yes, the gravelly voice continued. Ella opened her mouth, but no words emerged. She panted deep, heaving breaths, but her lungs felt empty. A layer of sticky sweat exploded across her brow even though she was sitting completely still. Go on, you little bitch. Tell her everything's okay. It's, it's, I'm okay, Ella stuttered, shocked it said one of the forbidden naughty words. She stared at the pile, trying to pinpoint the voice. At the top, there was a blue smurfette, which was sprawled across a plastic red bucket. Just underneath, there was a cluster of bright orange hair that Ella recognized as belonging to my precious princess. A stuffed Finding Nemo jutted from the opposite side, covering half of a toy horse with a purple mane. La La Loopsie's silly hair rested just below the bucket, and the dog's matching pet owl was in the lap of a nearby mermaid Barbie. A wind-up green alligator was upside down at the base of the pile and there were some toys she never remembered having in the first place, along with a whole bunch she couldn't see in the middle. But they all had one thing in common. Not a single one displayed any sign of life. Who, who's there? Ella asked. 
drawing her knees to her chest. Her hands were shaking pretty bad, but she didn't dare release her clutch on Marissa Clarissa. She believed if she could keep hold of her, everything would be just fine. When there was no answer, Alice scrambled towards an Elmo resting just to her left. She yanked the doll from the floor and flung it at the pile. There was a high-pitched chirp as it collided with other toys. Dolls bowled across the floor. The red bucket shot directly towards Ella, rolling with a tink, tink, tink. It stopped right at her feet. She peered inside. The bucket was empty. Ella froze, waiting for any movement. The toys just lay there, immobile and frozen. Ella jumped as the roof creaked overhead. Someone was coming downstairs. She closed her eyes and hoped they could reach her before the monster. Ella, Claire, Miriam, what in the world is going on? Ashley yelled, rushing into the room. The doll said a naughty word, Ella answered the best she could. Dolls can't be naughty, only little girls who throw them all over the floor. This is really inappropriate, Ella. But I heard it. He said I was a... Ella paused, noticing the scowl slice across Ashley's face. He called me that. He did, he did. Enough. Start cleaning up. Ella stared at the toys sprinkled across the room. Nothing had moved since Ashley arrived, and Ella hadn't heard any more of the gravelly voice. Still, he had to be there somewhere. She remained stuck to the wall. Now, Ella, Ashley said, taking a step closer. Ella knew if she didn't start cleaning soon, she'd be in for a spanking. Unlike Mommy, Ashley was always giving spankings. They weren't as awful as Daddy's, where she'd have to sit on her hands afterwards but Ashley did hit hard enough to make her butt glow red like Clifford. You can start with that playtime Emily you're holding. This is Marissa Clarissa, Ella said, jerking the doll out in front of her so Ashley could see. Boy, Ashley was so stupid. Everyone could see this wasn't Emily. Ella knew Emily. They sometimes played together at the swings, and Marissa Clarissa didn't look anything like her. Ashley would know this if she'd ever asked, but the only thing she cared about was dumb stuff like toothbrushing and baths. Put her in the box, Ashley said, placing a gap between every word. Ella knew adults talked like that when they thought she couldn't understand, but Ella had good hearing and knew what adults were saying even when they talked super fast and used naughty words. I'm... Ella began. Don't talk back, Ashley interrupted before Ella could explain she was going to take Larissa Clarissa to Mommy's. She really wanted to bring the doll, but it wasn't worth a spanking, so she crossed the room toward the wooden chest. Ashley, 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 Daddy shouted from upstairs. What? Ashley finally replied. Where did you put the recycling bags? Under the sink, where they always are. I would have found them there. Where did you put them? Joel, they're under the damn sink. Then we're out, because I can't find them anywhere. 
No, I just bought some on Tuesday. Then show me where the hell you put them. You, Ashley spun back towards Ella, clean up this mess and do it quick. If your father sees this, you'll be in big trouble. You hear me? Big, big trouble. As soon as Ashley left, Ella stuffed Marissa Clarissa into her pink flower backpack. She stared at the toy chest, wanting to stay far, far away. But Ashley was right. If Daddy saw this mess, his head might just explode. Ella would surely get a spanking, and not one of those good ones where he'd count the blows down to zero, but instead where he'd just go on hitting forever and ever. You little tattletale, the gravelly voice said. Don't say another word if you know what's best. I'll fuck you up, I will. Ella dropped the backpack. None of the dolls had moved, but the voice had come from right next to the chest. This time, she was certain it had been one of the dolls. Who, who are you? There was no reply. Ella took a step closer. There was a stuffed octopus at her feet. She picked it up and shook it a couple of times. The octopus hung limply in her hand. She tossed it at the toy chest. It hit the edge and fell onto the floor. That's not the one, she thought. Be brave, just like Princess Meredith when she confronted evil Cousin Crumb. She didn't get her unicorn back by running away like a sissy. That worked, and Ella took another step toward the toy chest. She picked up a pink Barbie glam convertible and tossed the car. This time, it sailed right on target, dropping inside with a thump. She worked her way across the floor, shaking each toy a couple of times before shooting it into the chest. The more toys she threw, the easier it became, especially as she drew closer. She'd always forgotten about the gravelly voice as she reached for a doll with roller skates. Whoosh! Ella bucked, dropping the doll as something whizzed past her side. She scurried back and leapt into a blue chair in the corner. It was situated next to the dresser. She didn't hesitate climbing up its side. Only after reaching the top did she master the courage to peek. There was no mistaking it. The thing had skidded past her and was now lying in the middle of the floor. Ella was certain this wasn't her imagination. Not only had she cleared that area, but she would have surely noticed this doll. Ella recognized those nappy clumps of brown hair, that tattered red dress, and more than anything, those eyes, or at least what was left of them. The right one was missing. Ella had plucked it out with a fork, and the other she'd colored pitch black that night when she'd stolen a Sharpie in order to draw tattoos on the doll's back. What do you want, Sophia? The doll did not answer. Her one black eye just stared up at Ella. She hadn't thought about Sophia this entire time, but this hardly came as a surprise. If Marissa Clarissa was on one end of the pals spectrum, Sophia was on the other. She was the doll Ella always gave to her prissy neighbor Taylor any time she came over to play. Even that cuckoo berry would insist on a different doll. Not that Ella ever gave her one. 
It hadn't always been this way. In fact, previous to Marissa Clarissa, Sophia had been one of her besties. There was her and Cole, a dashing charmer who drove around in a Barbie Glam convertible. He'd stolen it, but Sophia hadn't minded, since she enjoyed rogues, especially cute ones, in tuxedos like Cole. They were inseparable, and Ella had played with them every single day. Then Sophia began to sour. She became super mean, and Ella wondered if she'd had an accident. Since she started using all the naughty words adults said after they hurt themselves, and instead of smiling and giggling, she'd spent all day inside the dollhouse screaming and crying and making a big, big mess. Cole tried to cheer up Sophia and get her outside, but when he'd drive up and say, Hey, babe, let's go for a ride, she would yell at him for being a bossy meanie. She'd say the only reason he wanted to go out was because he hated her cooking and liked other dolls. Cole would counter that he did enjoy her meals, especially the easy-bake ones, but he always liked to drive, play tag, and throw fetch with his pet alligator, Chomps. Sophia would cry that nothing she did was ever good enough for him. Eventually, Cole stopped driving to the dollhouse. Sophia still waited for him, but got super bored just sitting around by herself. So she started to huff magic markers, but not the good ones like grape and cherry. No, she liked black licorice. She'd sniff it all the time, like when she had a cold, got to the point where not a single day went by and she didn't smell like yucky black licorice. And Ella hated that stench. It was worse than skunks, sulfur, and daddy's farts, all combined. And when Ella tried playing with her, Sophia would throw a fit and accuse her of scaring Cole away. Ella didn't like her mouthing off, so sometimes when Mommy wasn't watching, she'd step on Sophia and crunch her against the floor, or she'd drag her into the mud, making her dress all dirty so Cole would really hate her. And once, Ella took one of Daddy's screwdrivers and kept digging into Sophia's back until a small hole appeared. She wanted blood and guts to come out, but there was only air inside. What a jib. Nowadays, Ella didn't play with Sophia much, only when she was super-duper cranky and didn't mind being a meanie right back at her. And if Sophia was real nasty, Ella would wedge behind the bed where there was a loose nail and jab her against it. Sophia would always cry like a little baby, and this made Ella laugh. That was before she told the weird doctor with the scraggly beard, and Daddy removed the nail. Still, Sometimes she would put Sophia in the door and slam it shut, but that was never quite as fun. Sophia, what do you want? Ella repeated, doing that adult pausing for every word trick. She doesn't want a thing. She's too messed up to talk right now. Let her sleep it off on the floor. That'll teach that filthy whore a lesson. Ella glared across the room. This time, she had no problem seeing the source of the gravelly voice. She should have known he would be at the heart of this. The tubby baby sat against the wooden chest, sucking on a large pink pacifier. 
His engorged cheeks popped with every breath, and his eyes narrowed at her. What do you want, Dean? What do you think? I need a diaper change, he chuckled in between the slurp, slurp, slurp of the suckling pacifier. Deany dirty diaper, Ella thought. Been a long time, hasn't it, pal? A very wonderful long time. Why are you speaking in that weird voice, Ella asked. It was deeper and hoarser than she'd remembered. You damn well know why, bitch, he said, adding a few sloppy slurps of the pacifier after the naughty word. Ella had known Dean a long time. Back then, fairy tale Gallant had been her bestie, and unlike Ashley, Mommy always knew her bestie. That's why she'd grabbed fairy tale Gallant when Ella had refused to take off her shoes inside the house. Mommy had been super-duper mad and threatened to toss the doll into the fireplace. Ella didn't realize what was happening until the flames began to melt away at his plastic skin. Ella cried and cried and cried, but Mommy held her still, forcing her to watch until the doll turned all brown and gooey. Mommy said she felt bad afterwards and cried a bit herself. But Ella didn't care if she was sad. She just wanted Fairy Tale Collant to come back, and said so over and over and over. Mommy said he could never come back, never ever, and cried a whole bunch more. That's why Ella was so surprised when Mommy gave her Dean a few days later. Mommy pointed out that he was expensive and rare, one of those collector dolls only available on the internet. Dean was modeled on a real-life baby and had a chubby frame along with an adorable cheek-to-cheek -cheek grin. It almost made him seem cute. That was when she could see his smile. But when that giant pacifier was in his mouth, only a crinkled scowl remained, and Dean was always sucking on his pacifier. Ella had introduced Dean to the others, but he was spoiled and kept calling them mass-produced trash and plebes. Ella stopped playing with him, and Mommy thought it was because she was still mad about fairy tale Gallant. But really, it was because Dean was peculiar and told lies. Dean enjoyed gossiping and spreading rumors about the other dolls, just to watch them fight. He'd always come up with nasty nicknames and pretend he'd heard a different doll say them first. And then he'd watch from a distance and grin. It didn't surprise Ella that Dean had started to pal around with Sophia right at the same time she was having those fights with Cole. Worst of all, sometimes Ella would wake up in the middle of the night and find him perched at the end of her bed. She would ask how he got there, and Dean wouldn't answer. He'd just sit and stare, always sucking on that pacifier. Come on, don't be like that. Stop being silly and get down from that dresser. Ella peered towards the door and heard Daddy and Ashley arguing downstairs. There was a lot of banging and clattering, so she figured they'd be occupied for a little bit longer. She kicked off and landed on the floor with a thud. Dean grinned. He was still wearing the disposable diaper she'd put on him during their last encounter. It was slightly frayed at the edges, but not too bad for the wear. Certainly much better than the last one. 
Ella had ruined it by dumping a bottle of hand sanitizer down Dean's throat. She'd wanted to wash out his naughty mouth, but it run out his other end, ruining both the diaper and making a big stain on the hardwood floor. Mommy had called him Deanie Dirty Diaper after that, and for once, he was the one with a mean nickname. Long time no see. You look so cute in those pajamas. You got me in trouble. That's the last thing I wanted to happen. Will you accept my apologies, darling? I just hate to see such a pretty little girl with such a big, big frown. Can you give me a smile? Ella didn't feel much like smiling, but she flashed an unconvincing one anyway. Don't you remember all the fun we used to have? You were always laughing and smiling. Without me, you'd gotten so stone-faced serious. You need to lighten up, babe. Daddy will be really mad if he sees the mess you made. We'll just have to clean it up before he sees it. Out of sight, out of mind. Isn't that right, cutie? Dean stood on the stubby knobs he had for legs and began to hurl some toys into his chest. For being such a small tyke, he had incredible aim. Ella joined in, gathering a handful of dolls. As she dropped them inside, Dean began to whistle. She'd forgotten how well he could whistle, just like a prince. They cleared half the room when Dean let out a groan and dropped to the floor. He heaved deep breaths as he wiped a thick layer of sweat from his brow. It's so stuffy. Why doesn't that old hag turn on the A.C.? Grandma says she doesn't like the way it feels, says it weighs down the air and makes it taste heavy. The only way that cheap bitch cares about is that of her pocketbook. Can you grab me the water? Dean asked, pointing towards a half-filled bottle next to the bed. We really should finish cleaning up first. Only thing you should do is shut that stinking trap of yours. What are you waiting for? Get me the water. Ella stared at Dean for a second, noticing that he did look quite parched. She hissed but grabbed the water for him anyway. As she handed it over, Dean curled his knobby fingers around her wrist and squeezed. It's been a long time since we played together. Why do you prefer those other dolls? They're idiots. They don't realize you're special. Beautiful, perfect. We're not like those plastic creations. We're better. Don't you understand? I'm the only one who can really love you. Then why are you always so mean to me? Ella asked, hoping he would release his grasp. Being mean is sometimes the only way to get things done. Remember how Daddy was always playing on that fancy phone? How he would never listen to you? So we hid it under the car and he drove over it. That was mean, but he did pay attention after that. So don't take it personally. It doesn't mean I don't think you're the bestest girl in the world. Come on, give me a big hug. Ella wrapped her arms around Dean and squeezed tight. He was all warm and breathing heavy, so Ella figured he was still pooped out from cleaning up. You always get me into trouble. Only if we get caught. Remember playing witch at Taylor's house? How you knocked over that glass lamp with the broom? And did you fess up? No, you did exactly what I said and went crying to Taylor's mom and said that Taylor's hit you really hard with the broom. So when her mom saw the broken lamp, she believed Taylor had done it. 
and Taylor didn't even protest. Yeah, Taylor is a big dum-dum. And you're so smart, the smartest girl in the whole entire world. Thanks for the water, Dean said, guzzling a mouthful. We should finish cleaning up. First, I need another solid. Can you take off Sophia's dress? It's so hot in here, and I don't want her overheating. People can die from that, you know. Really? Ella asked, thinking that sounded strange. Oh, yeah, it's just like cooking in an oven. Being naked is the only way to know you're safe. I don't know. Don't be like that. You have to help her out. You guys used to be besties. Fine, Ella said, even if it sounded fishy. She couldn't risk wasting any more time arguing. Daddy could come down at any moment, and she didn't want a spanking. There was a tearing noise as she opened the Velcro straps and removed Sophia's dress. Dean wadded over on his stumpy legs. She's stinky, Ella said, pinching her nose. Let's give her a bath, Dean said, tugging down his diaper before Ella could stop him. He began to pee all over Sophia. This is all your own fault. You put yourself in this state. Maybe next time you'll remember to keep your fat mouth shut and not flirt with the other dolls, whore. That's not nice, Ella protested, staring at his little weenie as the last dribble splashed out. Ella knew the difference between girl and boy parts, but that tiny nub wasn't what those looked like, not in real life. Oh, shit, I got some on my diaper, Dean complained. Can you take it off? Gross, Ella whined. Just do it anyway. Ella tugged on the diaper, sliding it down his stumpy legs. Dean was still breathing super-duper hard, and Ella wondered how much more of a recess he would need before getting back to work. Just as she slipped the diaper completely off, Dean brushed his hand against her side. Hey, that tickles. Duh, I was tickling you. I don't like that, Dean. We need to finish cleaning up. Stop being such a goody-goody. Sophia isn't going to wake up for hours, and we're all alone. Let's goof around and have some fun. I guess, just for a little while. That's my girl, Dean said with a grin. Ello giggled as he ran his knobby fingers against the sensitive part on her belly. She remembered how he would blow raspberries there and hoped he would do that again. Ashley slammed the door and stormed across the kitchen. Some start to their romantic weekend, Joel thought as he took another sip of coffee. He couldn't wait to drop off Ella and start drinking something a little bit stronger. But if Ashley had her way, they'd spend all day tidying up. Why she had to have everything spotless before leaving was beyond him. Plus, it wasn't even their own damn house. Do you know what your daughter is doing? No, Joe replied, as if the answer was anything other than getting ready to go. Ella was in for it. She's running around, buck naked, and refuses to get dressed. I thought she'd outgrown that stage. Did you threaten a spanking? Yeah, and she accused me of wanting to kill her. Imagine that. Said she couldn't get dressed since it was too hot. That clothes would make her blood boil out through her skin and she'd die. Where does she come up with this stuff? It is a furnace down there. You know, she acts out every time before we drop her off at Maria's. 
What do you want from me? To tell Maria to clean up her shit. She's always drunk and a terrible influence. Bet we could save money on all those shrinks if we just cut her out of Ella's life. Trust me, I know she's a mess. That's why things didn't work out between us. But she's a good mother and loves Ella. And then there's that creepy boyfriend. Something's not right with him. I don't like the way he looks at Ella. Joel sighed. There was something off about Jean Van Riper, but he'd lost the right to intervene in Maria's personal life long time back. And who was he to judge? Jean was loaded, one of those financial wizards, while Joel was unemployed and living in his mother's house. And more, Maria wasn't the most responsible, but she'd never allow anything to hurt Ella. Plus, Ashley was the type to blow things out of proportion, like the time she'd screamed at Maria after Ella came back smelling like cigarette smoke. Jean was a chain smoker, but always did so outside. Ashley made it out as though he'd blown smoke right into Ella's lungs, which of course was nonsense. Joel wondered why he always fell for the overdramatic ones. I hope. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This romantic, he guessed. Whatever. We can't change it now. I'll wrangle her up. Joel's jaw dropped as he opened the bedroom door. How had Ella managed to make such a mess in five minutes? Ungoddamn believable. Clothes and toys were scattered everywhere, and Ella, buck naked, was sitting right in the center of the storm, and the little brat was grinning, almost taunting him. Worse, she was clutching that spooky baby doll Maria had bought it for Ella after one of her drunken tantrums. Joel loathed that thing, not only since it was damn ugly, 
but it also served as a reminder to that miserable part of their marriage. Why he hadn't tossed it in the dumpster was beyond him. Probably since Ella loved it, and he couldn't bring himself to break her heart. What did you do? he snapped. I don't know, Ella mumbled. We're going to be late. Mommy hates it when we're late, he said. Knowing this wasn't true, Maria probably was working off a hangover and might not even be up yet. Daddy, can Dini Dirty Diaper come along? Get dressed now, he barked. Can he? Can he? I'm not going to repeat myself, young lady. One more word and you're getting a spanking. Finally, that jarred her into motion. As Ella dressed, Joel stared at the toys scattered across the floor. His mother was going to have a fit if she saw this. She always was so nasty about keeping the house clean. God, Joel was so tired of her nonsense, especially the way she blamed him for Ella's misbehaving. If only he'd been a better husband, harder worker, stricter father, somehow he'd still be with Maria and it'd all be roses. Whatever. It wasn't as though her and her dad had been the best role models. No, he'd leave this myth hoping she'd find it. Daddy, can I bring Dean? Ella asked after she'd gotten dressed. Yeah, of course, Joel replied. He secretly hoped Ella would leave the rotten doll at Maria's. Oh, 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 Ella panted as though she was out of breath. We can't forget Sophia. Joel watched as Ella picked up a soaking wet doll. He didn't even want to know. Maybe she'd been giving it a bath since it was quite filthy. That doll looks pretty beat up. Do you want a new one? No, Daddy. Dean likes her like that. Well, tell Dean he should have better taste in friends. Oh, he does. Marissa Clarissa is his favorite. He hugs and kisses and loves her bestest in the whole entire world. That's great, honey, Joel said, rolling his eyes. Come on, time to go. He helped Ella put on her pink flower backpack and stuff the dolls into the rear pocket. Girls and their dolls, he thought. He'd never understand it. Girls and their goddamn dolls. Thank you for sharing, Drake. For over a decade, Drake Vaughn has been employed in numerous facets of the entertainment industry. He says he began his career by moving to New York City, at which time and place he worked in film production, both on the creative and technical ends of the business. While working on films, TV shows, and commercials, though, he began publishing short stories, selling them to independent zines. Dabbling in scriptwriting, he produced the successful online sketch comedy show Nothing's On. His videos were featured twice on the front page of MySpace during the height of its popularity. Likewise, he was showcased on YouTube and Vio, becoming one of the first producers to have a monetary contract with both sites. His viral videos have gathered millions of views. Drake now lives in Santa Monica, California, and writes full-time. 
This horror novel, The Zombie Generation, is now available. Published by Dead Orb Press. Thanks again. Dolls was narrated for us tonight by Ms. Lucy Smoker. Lucy describes herself as a former activist from the Houston Arts District. Well, she now lives with her husband of 20 years and their two boys on the great North American prairie. She homeschools by day, works nights, and in her spare time turns caffeine into stories. Ah, yes, a familiar old alchemy. Her first mystery, Distortion, a Texas crime novel about an artist who paints a crime scene in reverse perspective and turns a murder investigation backwards onto her friends, was featured on Show 18 of Crime City Central and is now available worldwide from Buzz Books USA. Its sequel, Paradox, is in the works. Her features have been published in multiple U.S. print magazines and online. And as a reader, Lucy has performed scripted voice work for Disney Quest Orlando and for multiple Houston business clients, as well as for Crime City Central and now Tales to Terrify. Thanks again, Lucy. Toys. Well, sometimes toys are not just for children. I mean, I've wanted a 1957 Porsche 356 Speedster ever since, well, 1957. The urge of the human to return to a sweeter, simpler time, to fulfill a deeply felt itch, to, well, to touch a world we've been denied by the realities of our drear little lives. That's what toys are for us, big people. So snuggle down, children, and have a listen to what Mr. Gareth Stack has to say in his story, Creep Doll. Her little face was blank, vacant, Tim thought, wholly absent. But then he hadn't turned her on. He shifted the rustling foam packaging of the box and pursed the child between two strong hands, lifting her easily up to his face. That close, the skin was ideally imperfect, bright and glossy, yet here and there blemished. Not lifelike, real. He set the doll down, still and oddly incongruent, on the coffee table. From the box, he pulled an instruction flexi-screen and touched it awake. A bright, half-familiar sea-list face resolved slowly on the disposable LED. He tapped the lips icon, and it spoke. Mr. Price, thank you for purchasing the Taffin Luxadol. This doll, like all Taffin products, comes with a full eight-year on-site guarantee. He grunted, tapping Seek. With the cost of the thing, the deal should include a car, holiday and daily shiatsu for years to come. The video skipped to a brochure scene and he hit play. On the flex, a tall, pro-athlete type was seated in a park on a sunny day. 
while his creep doll, maybe too biological approximate, made tentative steps as he looked on adoringly. The voiceover resumed. Not only will your Taffin Luxadol allow you to practice parenting skills and provide a loving, well-behaved, and easily maintained companion, on screen a cute twenty-something blonde approached and began playing coochie-coo with the giggling creep doll. Before long, she looked up with interest at the beefcake single father. Opportunities for making new friends and socializing with young parents who can find it difficult to relate to childless singles. Tim snorted, glancing at the creep doll as the dad in the video introduced himself, accompanied by the rich swell of a string quartet. It certainly did look real. Each face uniquely crafted, the hoardings roared. Your perfect opportunity to meet, they whispered, speaking just to him, 26 to 44, unmarried, male, college-educated, the perfect ABC1 consumer. Commuting to and from a highly paid nanny job. Hey, Tim, check it out. Yo, Tim, have we got a deal for you? Tim, this year, take a gender vacation in lawless Nevada. At least the hoardings were discreet. Crowded on the subway at night, no one knew which ad had hooked your retina, which acoustic cone projected just to you, whispering, Tim, you don't have to be alone. More and more men are choosing. Creep dolls. Half illegal, wholly sick toys. Props for pederasts and chicks with burnt out wombs. But they had other uses. As long as you kept their clothes on. As long as you hid the state mandated absence of genitals and the lemon yellow non-organic life form tattooed onto their tiny silicon chests. Creep dolls could pass as human for a while. On the flex, animated boot-up instructions flashed for his attention. Tim shook his head and laid the doll down, still in her two-foot oaken box. Create a rich parenting environment, the fleck advised. Outfit your home as for a human child. And so he did, hitting Macy's new parent site for a child pen, mobile, cradle and daddy dearest frontside toddler carrier. He thought about it for a while, then added pampers, wipes and kitty chow for realism. The doll watched as Tim assembled, first its cradle, then the hugely intricate pen with its 85 separate pieces and instructions in Persian, Chinese and comically inept English. He'd propped the creature upright in its box at an angle to the wall so he could keep an eye on it, so it could keep an eye on him. It was a cute, freckled little thing with dark blue ringlets and a slightly crooked overbite. A face nth generation maternity mechanisms had tweaked and prettied to imprinting perfection. Even off, Tim could feel its need, its simple, pure desire to be protected. He shivered a little, pushing the last slat into place. Somehow the pen seemed reassuringly solid. He turned and hefted the doll's light carbon-silicate frame into the enclosure, turning it on.
For a moment, nothing. The eyes remained glassy as ever, features frozen in timeless contemplation. Then it blinked and looked about, orienting, lifting its arms to stretch, flexing fingers like a miniature pianist. Systems test, he thought, coolly fascinated. It had to be checking each silent servo, each richly adaptive kinesthetic analogue. Before him, the doll began to spin, smiling softly as it turned, fat wee arms realistically loose, little knees bent convincingly below a sunflower-yellow summer dress. Tim leaned over the pen and the creep doll froze and blinked again, activating some higher-level learning set. He smiled a little awkwardly. He tried, Hello. Daddy, she replied, and threw her arms around him. He set up his test on a grassy bank up along the breeze-cooled cliffs that overlooked the Great Atlantic Bridge. He'd brought along a hydroponic picnic which sighed itself out into a tartan ground sheet, sprouting bulbs of iced lemon tea and hot buttery pita bread stuffed with tofu and chickpea falafels. Tim lifted the doll from her carrier and set her upright on the grass beside him. Deactivated, for the moment, dead. She was as actual as Eve. Frozen deep in some infantile epiphany, her little features were scrunched in apparent surprise. He shifted the doll so it faced away along the clifftop path, then switched it on. The little girl sprang to life, tottering along the grass, glancing round in apparent joyous exploration. For a moment, he worried she might wander too far, cross the path to the long, still drop to the rocks below. Then he remembered the breeze shield, which deflected accidents and would-be suicides. Remembered she was dead and heavily insured. Suki had been his tipping point. Lean, hip and lush with enhancements, she'd seemed liberated and exciting. Through their first date, Tim had been captivated. Captivated by her tales of slaughter weekends in the dry waste of the Aussie outback. Captivated by her skin's lullaby drift from indigo luminescence to translucence. Perhaps the barcode on her neck should have rung alarm bells, a little tasteless as she'd never been to jail. He knew he should have taken note when her club of choice turned out to be the Come Down King, a motley cantina packed with ex-junkies and serotonin temperance freaks. In the pub, a loping cyber-goth, huge and oddly free of visible tech or even old-school body mods, had gripped his arm too hard and held his gaze unhealthily. An ex, of course, slapping Suki's ass possessively, bodily whispering something which set her laughing. Tim had tried to steal a grin, offered the manimal a drink, had tried not to react as this topless, bemuscled cretin stood between him and the girl, gutting their date like a boneless fish. He'd gotten up to leave when they'd begun playfully fooling around, the goth demonstrating a foreplay technique involving grinding Suki into his lap as he hooked Tim's gaze and chewed her shoulder. He'd gotten up to leave, but he'd been stopped by the girl, who'd hopped up suddenly and taken his hand and led him, like a lamb, 
deep into a darker, danker corner of the bar, where she'd launched into a gritty exposition of her childhood, her hand on his cheek, cowey eyes wider than ever. She'd talked, and just as it had seemed that they might have a two-way conversation, rushed off to hold court with one or another group of drugged-out criminal types. Each time eventually returning to talk at him some more, her date buddy. He'd left, finally, alone at three, stooped and defeated, refusing an invitation to some hip pad where terrible things, he expected, fizzed on blackened, stolen silver spoons. He'd actually dated Suki twice after that. Both times she'd been vacant and indifferent, checking her time plant, repeatedly bouncing their location as if to shake something, someone travelling with them. Suki had been the last, the worst, the crazy story Tim would tell at dinner parties, slyly hinting at the excitement of his other, darker, more experimental life. Suki had been the worst, but in truth, just another in the conga line of disastrous, staccato, flickering embarrassments. Girls, his memory shot past on greased electric rails. What? he'd ask, finding himself again and again alone, could be the problem. He was such a nice guy. Well educated, considerate in conversation, attentive, the sort of guy who'd carry a single red rose. Let his companion choose the restaurant, the play, the movie, pay for everything. Soliloquise amusingly when the occasion demanded, nod appreciatively when expected. The sort of guy who'd always, always leave the appropriate and subtly communicative delay before calling for a second date. It couldn't be him. Out on the green, the little girl had found a friend. Another tot, about three or four, this one most likely alive and human and unaware of her companion's strange mix of vat organics and plastic composites and nothing else at all. A kid racing around the doll, clapping her hands. The girl's parents gradually approached along the path and, smiling, introduced themselves. Patrick Hirsch. Beth Earnhardt. He responded, shaking their hands in turn. The man, a slight bookish type, sweating through a short-sleeved work smock, laughed. Seems like Trish and your daughter get on pretty well. Sure enough, out on the grass, the girl and the machine chased one another, their little arms outstretched, as much to protect from falling as to tag. I guess they are, Tim said, and choked a little, his mind blank. She is a little dear said the woman, taller than her husband, slim, unreasonably pretty. What's her name? Tim didn't reply. He couldn't. He'd honestly never considered the question. Naming a creep doll, now that was something. The man coughed, and Tim spoke up. Lucy, Lucy doesn't have too many friends. She gets a little uh, excited. He rose and began walking towards the girls, gaining speed, moving too fast, almost slipping on the grass as he stooped to lift his little girl into the air. The single parent group was pricey, 
There be no half-mad goth chicks here, only the finest, high-functioning neurotics, borderline and histrionic personalities, the Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc of personality disorders. Be friendly, be friendly, but distant, he thought, responding politely, even warmly, to the low-end alimonied types who seemed at first so eager. Don't cash in too soon, he told himself. You can do better. Scan the territory. You are the prize. He gossiped mindlessly with the other dads and waited for a woman to catch his eye. Lucy seemed to fit in so well with the other children. Amazing in one sense, her intricate coordination, her perfectly infantile proto-speech, perfect wizardry. But he wondered, how many situations could the doll be exposed to? The makers had obviously anticipated a classroom scenario and she joined in eagerly with finger-painting, occasionally toddling over to present some primitivist masterpiece. What other, strictly speaking, legal but less socially acceptable situations had she been prepared for? He was briefly nauseated. Your daughter is adorable. A voice from behind his shoulder. How old is she? This time he was prepared. She'll be two next May. His eyes remained fixed on the doll. The woman moved to his side and he watched her, vague in his peripheral vision, absent-mindedly pawing at her kid's biomeasure, fingers tracing the haptic bump of an endorphin jump. Tim turned to briefly look her over. Petite, blonde hair jetting back to a sharp forest of manga spikes, a bodice wasp-wasting down to a black mini, her glasses purple-shaded and trendily off-kilter, the typical conservative single mom, but thinner. Her cheeks seemed shrunken, if still flush, her wrist reaching back to pat her hair, a little desiccated. Not Annie, he thought, returning his gaze to the little girl, now bouncing about on a miniature space opera, chased by a clutter of screaming toddlers. Not Annie, too healthy a complexion. See or for sure, with the clear skin and bright eyes of a dedicated life extender. Thin, though, as from a disease. Hot. Elifia, she said, extending her hand, and he took it warmly, gently, a little frightened of exerting pressure. They spoke as the kids played, watching each other carefully, awkwardly venturing grins and newcomer observations at the expense of the other parents. Alethea hinting at how she'd set up in the city after a change of job and a messy breakup. Tim explaining his choice to have a child alone. She had, he found, a rare intelligence, a way of priming jokes so that their body payload seemed to land only slowly and uncertainly, as though a product of your own perversity. What a joy to talk at last to a girl articulate with hot gesticulations and wry, challenging observations, a three-dimensional human being, a flesh-and-blood human being. As the weeks passed, Tim played hot and cold, flirting with the best of the other mothers, acting distracted one day, slipping Alifia a book or mix-album permission the next. 
He took to dressing well in Versace cashmere belly tops and Ralph Lauren kabuki ninja turbans. He had his plaits re-dyed in affect-triggered day-glow spirals, twists that glowed sunset orange when he chatted with Alethea. They began walking by the park after class, the kids scooting around their feet on toy slow drift skeds, raising waves of autumn leaves to flutter and land in Alethea's hair. Leaves for Tim to tenderly remove. They talked, acquainting themselves with warm, censored versions of one another. Alethea vocal in her support for his decision to have a child alone. Tim shaking his head at reports of her humorless, careerist ex. Always the children played together. Lucy and Rowan growing ever closer through the autumn, separating only at night when the little doll had to be secreted away to charge with a low hum from an ordinary wall socket. Alethea toasted two handfuls of chestnuts on the grill, simmering a mushroom and grape juice sauce up in a shallow pan, delicately weighing each pinch of basil and oregano before tossing them into the simmering mix. In another pot, an inch and a half of boiling rice neared readiness. Tim's mouth watered. When you were this hungry, you could taste the steam that rose in thick, wet drifts from the cooking surface. He reached into the heat field for a chestnut and had his hand slapped back twice, first by the dry burn, a second time by the girl. Good check on the kids, she scolded, turning from the pots to face, pantomime pushing in the direction of the living room, her eyes grinning wickedly. In fact, get everybody washed up. Grub's almost ready. Washing the kids' proffered hands reminded Tim of something he dreaded. What if Lucy were to spill something on herself? What if Alethea thought she needed to use the potty? He didn't want to imagine her reaction. Couldn't stop himself visualising surprise, disgust. Alethea dropping, perhaps throwing Lucy into the bath or against a wall. Rowan grafted to her chest as she smashed blindly out of the apartment. Officers at his door, his name on a registry at playgrounds and nurseries. Perhaps a story in the news feeds. Lucy ground up, recycled or worse, resold as a toy to some molester. Tim was shaking, one hand on the basin, his blanched face staring back from the mirror. The kids watched him quizzically, Rowan backing away, Lucy turning her head on one side to look right up at him. Daddy, you okay, Daddy? She held out one tiny palm, patted his knee. Tim reached down and picked the little girl up, pressing her to his chest, buried his face in her sea-blue curls. Everything's all right, Lucy. Everything is fine. He rose from the mattress and tossed his legs over the side, dropping his sleep set to the bedside table. In the cool grey half-light, Alethea looked beautiful, her features softened but still strong. He ran a finger over her lips, brushed her hollowed cheek. It was only the third time she'd spent the night. Defying all convention, they'd waited months to sleep together. At the group, gossip had cracked like static around their near-chaste Victorian courtship. All the chickens clucked their disapproval. 
Neither of them cared. There was something romantic about an old-time affair. Tim padded onto the landing, steering through the apartment by memory. He checked on Rowan, sprawled on a futon in the spare room, mohawk tufted to a frond above his Spider-Man pyjamas. Lucy was in the little room he'd painted for her. Formerly the den, now a nursery with softly pulsing cartoon lullabies, silent in the deep stage of a sleep cycle. Clowns and birds of paradise, glowing like radon watches in the cave of dark. Lucy was charging in her cradle, to which he'd added an induction pad when the risk of wires became too great. As Tim leaned over her cot, she seemed to wake, to smile and raise her little arm, to wave. He blinked. The doll was sleeping. Micro-movements simulated a child at rest. How strange a thought. To whatever degree the girl was conscious, she was always awake, at times merely pretending to sleep. Lucy tossed her head, as though dreaming. Alifia IM'd him at work, the warm throb of a priority communication overriding his filters. Tim nodded, blinking her message crisply to his retina. Call me ASAP. It's about your daughter. He pushed back from his desk, almost knocking over his chair. Unsteadily, he jogged to the corridor and hit the single bathroom, invoking privacy. The company's monitors would record everything. He couldn't help that. Fuck! Pulling a workwear bow tie from round his forehead, Tim slipped to a crouch against the wall. The tiled floor was ice cold. Lucy was home. What could have happened? With a gesture, he called back. Tim. Her face broke through, a one-way image, eyes searching the blank video on her end. Tim, thank God, it's, it's Lucy. She, your super got diverted to me. He, he's not on your priority list. Tim cursed under his breath. Honey, what's wrong? She was all alone, Tim. A couple heard her crying from across the corridor. She was inconsolable, but I got her, I got her done. You should have your sitter arrested. There's no sign of anyone here. Tim allowed himself to breathe. Al, I can't thank you enough. You're amazing. Can you get away? I'll leave now. Give me half an hour. After Alifia had left, holding him close in the apartment's doorway, promising to put him in touch with a more reliable agency, Tim leaned against his front door for a long time. The place was eerily quiet. Sitting at the kitchen table, he pulled up a sketch pad, laying out the problem logically. Alifia was everything he'd looked for. Smart, successful, available in a way that had long been considered deeply unfashionable. She was an adult, perhaps the first he'd met. But now, the doll was like an albatross, circling ever lower. It was just a clockwork toy, a thing of bites and plastic after all. He had to rid himself. Tim smashed his fist against the table and wiped the document. From the nursery, a voice, high and plaintive. Daddy? He couldn't kill his daughter. As weeks passed and risks mounted, Tim wrestled with the problem, taking care never to leave the machine on again. He managed to convince Alifia he'd hired someone responsible. The clock was ticking. Others might have faced this problem, maybe even found a solution. 
but his endless trawling of the net couldn't seem to track them down. He considered abduction, Lucy stolen by a stranger, but the publicity and the police and the media attention impossible. Death then, here or abroad, accident or illness. But where could he go where death certificates wouldn't require verification, birth records and the answers to unanswerable questions? Tim found himself spacing out at work, clicking and unclicking a stylus, gazing out his office window into the bay. Where could he go where a doctor wouldn't take one look and realise? Hell, just taking the kid out of the country would be impossible. How would he ever get her through border security? What if the body were completely destroyed, crushed by a waterfall or burnt up in an explosion? No use. One problem solved, two more created. The authorities wouldn't stop searching till they found remains. The police would demand to know the cause. Modification then, illegal add-on parts, enough to fool all but a, a detailed medical examination. But that would just delay the inevitable. This child would never age or grow. Would never change. Even if he could somehow replace her with incrementally older models, the intelligence just wasn't there. Convincing AI topped out in kindergarten. Perhaps a legal battle, he found himself wondering, occupying a lift for tens of minutes in the evening, up and down, up and down, motionless. Some disenfranchised maternal figure, an actress emerging from the woodwork to demand sole custody. But it couldn't be. He told Alifia the kid was vat-grown, remixed and cloned from his own DNA. Even if he went back on that story, he'd have to stage a battle. Alifia would never accept it if he just gave the child up. Too much conspiracy required, too many details. That left what? Come clean? Have Alifia accept the subterfuge after a minor argument? Yeah, in 20 years maybe, on his deathbed. But after a few months, no relationship was that strong. It seemed the doll would have to die, which took him right back to square one. Tim asked himself at work, nodding his way through his worst monthly review in half a decade. What would Geppetto do, or dear old Dr. Frankenstein? And just like that, he had his answer. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. They took her eyes, snapping with a twist click where the retinas should be. Coral is far more red than her lips red. Her mouth peeled back, a rictus of mesh filaments revealed in place of cheeks. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. The scalp parted, a sticky mess of CSF pooling at the seam. The doll was off, shipped across the border, inactive in a box, dead on the operating table, skinned, dehumanised, synthetic, piece by piece. Tim watching from behind the theatre glass, rubbing a hand over his eyes. Here, here in the unventilated sweat of San Paolo, in backstreet surgeries built on metamorphosis, on the poor dark dreams of trans men and chimeric furries, you could buy anything, any perversity. You could switch the eyes of vat-grown organics, and the face biomimetic, of a creep doll, with what, a street kid, a lost child from who knew where, even burn the mind in, photopolymer to synapse, like scouring a wax record 
from a digital recording. Eat your heart out, Pinocchio, Tim thought. Eat your heart out. In the real world, it took a body to make a body, rising pink from the amniotic bath. In the real world, a sin behind the switch, skinless, pits hooded in the ropey stake of facial muscle. In the real world, one thing died so another could live. A helm of needles, devil's torture chamber, descending beneath stereotaxic electrodes extruding. Tim watched, gaze glued to his double murder. His wife and children put to sleep. He takes a tram, then a bus, then walks part way, implants off so he can't easily be followed. He charters a sub using a disposable credit slip, rides it way out to the storage lockers, unseen cabins crusting the bay floor in an artificial reef. Pausing in the lock, he unwraps a toy doll from its packet and looks out, out of the clear plastic tunnel to the ocean beyond, looks out to the fronds of algae clutched to the faces of a thousand other pods, to the shoals of stripped bass and Atlantic sturgeon darting between them. Somewhere ashore, Lucy, the one with bones and homework and a fresh set of teeth, the Lucy with a real Live, beating heart is sleeping. He taps a code into the antique panel, waits while pressures equalise. She's waiting on the other side. He catches his breath, the door opens. His eyes take in the dull resin of her new face, catch the cheap composites, her eyes now. His daughter smiling. Well, you hang in there, Dad. To quote Hugh Grant's character in the film adaptation of Nick Hornby's About a Boy, the which I do recommend, especially around Christmas. Well, I guess Gareth's tale is less about using faux children to attract comely single moms and is more about the pathetic fallacy given teeth, hmm? And thank you for it, Mr. Stack. Gareth Steck is a writer, performer, activist, humorist, and psychotherapist in training. He's also Irish. You can find his writing at GarethStack.com, spelled pretty much as you imagine, with a G-A-R-E-T-H-S-T-A-C-K. And his latest project, the weekly sketch comedy podcast, Dead Medium, is on iTunes. Or maybe found at ladyboyjesusoneword.com. Just Google him. Gareth's name will fill your page. So thank you again for a terrific story, Gareth. And thank you as well for providing us with an excellent reading of it. You know, 
Gareth was one of our narrators back in the nook in the early days. Looking all the way back to show number three, he read Gary McMahon's memorable Black Glass, as well as giving voice to Anna Taborska's Schrodinger's Human in show 34. And he did a lovely reading of Conrad Williams' Once Seen in our 37th outing. Good to make your acquaintance as an author, Gareth. And that will be... Oh, by the way, that 57 Porsche Speedster, I'll take it in any color, so long as it's silver. And there endeth the lesson, children. For tonight, at least. Good we learn something from our horrors, yes? Well, what else is dark fiction for but education and warning notes, hmm? So, be upstanding, stack your bowls and cups in the sink. Mahler will take care of them. Be off to the cloakroom for your wraps, and that will be that until next week. Oh, one more thing. Craig of the Douglas clan, have a happy, happy, you know what birthday this is, hmm? Now, on your walk home in this evening's summery mug, please watch out for small, skittery shadows in the alleys, the ones you might pass, or in the moving darknesses between parked cars and those narrow side streets. They're probably only rats, maybe coyotes, or feral other things. Dolls rarely stray far from their mothers or their dads, so when you get home, and I certainly don't know if you've managed to save any of your little childhood figures, but if so, you might want to close the closet door. Make sure all of those little faces with their intentions written on them are put away before you, as my father used to say, hit the hay and are on your way to pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.